Hello and welcome. You're listening to Talkville 21, the podcast. Okay now, Vladimir, like I said, no malarkey. We want a stable and predictable relationship. But first, I know you've been hacking into all kinds of American... Vladimir, what the heck is that? What? What is... Is there something on my face? Oh, come on, man. You think this is some kind of joke? A joke, da? Here's a joke. One morning, I poisoned a dissident in my underwear. How he got into my underwear, I have no idea. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'll be here all week, folks, for the next 20 years. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Talkville 21. Today, we begin a new series of episodes exploring political satire, its role in the modern world, its origins, and how it will evolve in an increasingly digital environment. Joining us for this discussion is Alexander Clement, director and creator of Puppet Regime, an award-winning satirical show that highlights the evolving landscape of geopolitics through puppetry and impersonation of world leaders. In addition to writing and directing Puppet Regime, Alex Clement is also creative director at G-Zero Media and a senior editor of Signal. Formerly an analyst with G-Zero Media's parent company Eurasia Group, Alex has also worked as a journalist for the Financial Times. Our discussion covers the complex landscape of modern politics and seeks to underline what makes a show that combines politics, puppets, and current affairs so funny to so many people. We hope you enjoy it. Well, thank you for joining us today on Talkville 21. Pleasure to be here. Let's let's start flowing. Okay. First thing I'd like to know is how exactly did Puppet Regime come about, first of all? And second, why why within G0 Media and why affiliated with uh, Eurasia Group? Right. So the idea uh, came up when G0 Media was created. And, and what G0 Media is, is a media affiliate of Eurasia Group. Eurasia Group is a leading political risk analysis firm that does a lot of brilliant work for paying clients who want to understand how the world works, where they should invest their money, where they should not, how politics affects economic outcomes, and so on. We, at a certain point, realized that Eurasia Group, I was an analyst at Eurasia Group for many years, we realized that we were doing so much public media outside of that that it made sense to start our own media platform, to use the brain power that was going into a lot of the more detailed political risk analysis to apply that to explaining and illuminating global politics for, for a broader audience. And we started up, I guess, in 2000, right around 2016, 2017, which was, you know, a time when it felt, and it still does, like there was a real demand for a kind of clear unbiased, no BS, but accessible way to understand and look at global politics. So that's the kind of big background. When we were sitting down talking about what kind of programming we should do, Ian Bremmer, who is the president and founder of Eurasia Group, we we're sitting in his office and in his office, there is a, uh, there was a puppet of Ian that a friend of his had given to him years ago as a sort of party gift, some gift gag kind of thing it was never intended to be used as anything other than a than a prop in his office and ian was saying you know ever since i was a kid i always wanted to do some kind of cool thing like cool puppet show and so he asked me since i i was working as an analyst at eurasia group but i had a 
kind of avocational experience and background in film, theater, songwriting, various other creative pursuits. Um, he said, hey, should should we try and, you know, think of a, a puppet satire show? And that was really the genesis. The genesis was just like this chance that someone had given him a puppet. You know, he was a fan of the Muppets growing up, weren't we all? Um, but the idea to kind of translate that into a puppet satire show kind of came from him. And then he asked me if I would be interested in exploring it. And, you know, you, you don't say no to a chance to do a puppet satire show. Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe you do. I don't know. I don't know who you are if you do. But um, and uh, and that was the genesis of the whole thing. So the, the first thing, the first puppets we had made were um, Donald Trump. He was president at the time. Kim Jong Un, Vladimir Putin and Angela Merkel. I think that was the initial crop. And now we have, you know, m over a dozen. But that was the that was the initial genesis for the idea. OK, well, that's yeah, no, that's. That's quite an origin story. Um, you can sort of tell, actually, what, watching through the videos, uh, just how important Angela Merkel has been has been <laughs> as a threat. I was actually uh, just an hour ago. I was listening to one of the musical episodes uh, yeah. about her departure, and it just had me in stitches. Yeah. Oh, the Kraftwerk uh, techno. Uh, to, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, 1980s techno is delightful. <laughs> Thank you. No, it's just yeah, it's just such a such a bizarre medium for mm -hmm. for a political risk group to to engage with how do you how do you thread the needle between uh seriousness and and silliness i suppose well i think the aim of of something like puppet regime is to entertain but also to illuminate in a way right uh the things that are happening in the often kind of confusing and inaccessible world of global politics, right? When you really boil down international relations, they are at a certain level relations. Hmm. They're relationships. They're human relationships. They're absurd. They're silly. You know, particularly these days, they're, they're, they're often dysfunctional. They can have a soap opera aspect to them. And I think what we try to do with Puppet Regime, it comes from the same place as what Eurasia Group tries to do for its clients. It's find the best way to explain or illuminate what's happening in global politics for a particular audience, right? So if you're talking to a CEO of a company, that person doesn't want to have a puppet show about the politics of, you know, what Russia's doing in Ukraine. They want a very specific set of analyses and they want a very specific set of outcomes and actionable ideas, right? But if you're trying to explain what's going on with Russia and Ukraine or France and the UK or, uh, you know, US and Russia, if you're trying to explain it to a general audience, uh, which may not want to sit down for the full Monty of political risk analysis, puppet satire is actually a great way in because puppets are disarming. They are ridiculous in a way that's engaging. And I think the challenge is to strike that balance between, you know, good satire has a grain of truth and a pinch of absurdity, and that's why it's got to work, right? And, you know, all the material that we satirize with Puppet Regime is based on real stuff, right? It's not like, let's just imagine, you know, Joe Biden going into a sex shop because that's funny. It's like, yeah, that's funny. You could do that if you wanted. But it, it, it's the humor is based on the reality of what these people's political personas are and how they how they relate to each other. Right. So it's funny to imagine the dysfunction at a G7 meeting as though it's a it's a corporate retreat gone horribly wrong. Right. It's naturally engaging to explore the relationship between 
Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un by sending them on a Father's Day fishing trip where they talk about their relationship with their dads, right? Like taking this world of high politics and international relations and putting it into the sort of mundane quotidian peccadillos of daily life is funny or setting daily situations in ways that world leaders political personalities come out and how they deal with you know fixing the toilet walking the dog making a grocery list that also works right so i think the aim is always the same whether it's eurasia group analysis or you know what we do at g zero media with our newsletters or our tv show or our puppet puppet regime it's to find a engaging way to explain and illuminate things that is appropriate to the audience uh, that you're that you're looking for. Hmm, fair enough. Well, the question I have about your audience then is um, how, how much of this trickles down to uh, to the average consumer? Because in, in a lot of ways, I feel like it's much more well, one, it's much more accessible, but it's also much funnier if you already have a, a substantial background in politics. And so in a way, it, it feels a lot like, you know, Sesame Street for poli-sci grads. Right, 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 right. Um, that is something that's a constant struggle in creating these things. How much background knowledge do you expect of your audience, particularly when you're talking about, you know, for example, like we did a, you know, we did a skit where uh, Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron are arguing about this AUKUS submarine deal, right, which, you know, in which the, you know, the, the French were very upset that the that they had lost this submarine contract from Australia. And there was in real life, there was this whole thing where Emmanuel Macron had withdrawn the ambassador from Australia and withdrawn his ambassador from the US uh, as a show of his displeasure, but left the French ambassador in London uh, as, as a particular slight to the English, right? You English aren't even important enough for us to withdraw our ambassador. You're not even, you're just a, f a fly buzzing in the room. You're not important enough for us to care, right? And that really set off Boris Johnson, right? So that's a funny setup for, you know, just because it's so childish. It's so like high school dance, who got invited, who didn't, right? But of course you need to have the background to understand what the submarine deal was, what the new, you know, Australia, UK, US security pact is for Southeast Asia, uh, for, 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 for the Pacific. So yes, you do need to have uh, a certain level of understanding. On the other hand, my five-year-old son laughs hysterically at that skit, right? Because there's something, you know, the best puppet regime episodes, I think they work for my five-year-old son for my 15-year-old niece and for my 50-year-old boss on different levels, right? The puppet drama and presentation and absurdity of it appeals to my five-year-old son. He thinks it's hilarious. He goes around parroting lines by Boris Johnson and Vladimir Putin. He doesn't even know what they, you know, he's not an, but he goes around saying, um, so there's a certain aspect of the performance that can appeal to anybody on a basic level and getting those levels right where it's like a 15-year-old person can understand that there's something inherently silly about the president of France and the prime minister of the UK arguing like they're high school students over, you know, who got invited to a dance or not. Right. And then the person who really does understand this issue can say, wow, this is actually quite a clever, uh, you know, they work the real issue underlying here into this skit in a way that I can appreciate the humor, but also, you know, it's illuminated something about the reality of what's going on. So I think the best skits work at, at various levels, but you are right that to fully appreciate them, I think you do need a basic understanding of some of these issues that is probably a bit above, you know, what the general population that's not reading, you know, The Economist and foreign affairs and foreign policy and so on would have.
Well, I, I'm, I'm going to turn that on its head actually right now and mention that in some ways the emergence of puppet regime makes a lot of sense because this very much is the era of the political meme. Right. Something that I've noticed yeah, Ian Bremmer seems to engage in fairly frequently, uh, particularly about Anglo-French relationship now that I think about it, something about fish. Right. But back specifically to your... Uh, to your planning of the show. You said you have a background in theater and film. And yeah, and music, songwriting, yeah. With Puppet Regime, all the scripts are written by me. I do most of the voices and all the songwriting as well. So it's it's really like a, a lot of it's not quite a one man not quite a one man band. I work with a very talented editor and actually prior to the pandemic I worked with a lot of puppeteers, but over the past year and a half it's really been kind of contained in in, in, in one room with, with some help. And I do work with some other writers who send me ideas and I work with them as well. But, you know, the head writer is basically, basically me. Okay, so it's you in a basement with your puppets. <laughs> that doesn't sound creepy at all. It sounds Not weird. at all. No, 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 no. We all, I'm yeah. actually, I'd like to clarify, I'm actually on the second floor rather than the basement. Ah, okay. So, so there's a little sunlight. That's, that's good. Yes. But you know what? Like, I can't, I can't judge you. We all developed bizarre coping mechanisms during the pandemic. Right. Um, <laughs> but but when, we, when you were planning this, what, what, kind, of, what kind of research uh, into political satire? I mean, did you have a background in, in thinking about politics from a satirical perspective? I mean, I imagine you and everybody else of globally our, our generation mm. spent a lot of time watching The Daily Show, The Colbert Report, things like that. But did you, did you uh, how, how deep did you delve into uh, the history of political satire? Not at all. Not at all. I mean, I was not I didn't come at this project from the background of someone who is a political satirist or a comedian, really. And so I I came at it from the background of a person who studied international relations and worked professionally as a political analyst and, and as, as a journalist for some years as well. Um, and just kind of thinking, what's the what's the funniest most fun way to present some of this stuff um and i'm you know i'm sure that there that a deeper study of the history of political satire might have benefited me but um but no i came at it from the background of um look i understand these issues well um and i want to try and find a way to present them to people who maybe don't understand them as well in a way that makes them feel like they do uh, you know, I want people to come away from a puppet regime episode with a laugh and an idea that they can keep with them. Um, so yes, I watched John Stewart. I think he's, I think he's a complete genius. Uh, you know, I grew up on like, you know, the Simpsons and later family guy, you know, of course I read Gulliver's travels and a modest proposal. I mean, like, you know, the, these, these bedrocks of political satire I'm familiar with. Um, but I, I, I didn't, when I was, when I was planning puppet regime, I really didn't, uh, I think deliberately didn't do a whole lot of research because I just wanted to kind of explore what was there. You know, there are other puppet satire shows of which I, I've seen and I'm aware of this. Le Guignol, of course, you know. Um, there was uh, a, a very popular puppet satire show in Russia in the 1990s called Kukli. Uh, and I spent a number of years as a Russia analyst, so I was always familiar with, I used to go to Russia all the time, I was familiar with that. Not surprisingly, once they started satirizing Vladimir Putin, the show came to a swift end in the early 2000s. Uh, this will not surprise your listeners, I'm sure. Um, so I'm familiar with these things. Spitting Image, of course, was around when I was a kid. I mean, I'm dating myself here, but I still remember the the, the music video for Genesis's for, for the song by Genesis, "Land of Confusion," which had 
the um the the spitting image puppets in it and ronald reagan is drowning in a is drowning in his own sweat while sleeping and all this so this stuff is all kicking around but i did not set out to try to create the next node in a grand continuum of political satire stretching from jonathan swift to jonathan stewart no all right and how if you don't mind me asking uh how successful has puppet regime become over the years so we um, have had maybe maybe a dozen or so real breakouts. I mean, breakouts meaning in the uh, well into the millions of views. Our most successful platforms have been Facebook and Twitter, YouTube less so, and Instagram. We're just kind of starting to explore. We've had some big some big hits on on Instagram as well, but uh, you know it, it it's it's been. It, it, it built largely on a shoestring. I think it's been quite successful. There's always bigger things one can do and, you know, would, lo would love to do bigger things always. But the, uh, the ones we've been making have gotten decent number of, consistently decent number of views, some huge breakouts. And also the, the comments and engagement that we do get from people, I think, is always very, um, you know, intense and gratifying, both from people who love it or pe people who, uh, who hate people don't hate puppet regime people sometimes get very ticked off when we satirize politicians that they support and like um which i consider to be a success um you know for the series of course well to be fair yeah i was i was going to ask about that the risks you uh, you incur by uh, by engaging this sort of satire uh for, for one i imagine that your trips to russia are, are no longer uh, much of a thing no, well, you know, actually, um, I haven't been to Russia in several years, uh, but not because of um, because of puppet regime. In fact, my last trip to Russia was November of 2017, and I took the Trump puppet with me and went out on the street and constructed an entire skit, an entire episode around man on the street with the Putin puppet in Russia. And the premise was Donald Trump wakes up one morning, finds that he's locked out of his Twitter account has heard that everyone in Russia is a hacker because that's what the lamestream media keeps telling him. So he gets on a plane, goes to Moscow and hits the streets of Moscow asking people if they can help him with his Twitter password. You know, and I'm a Russian speaker, so I was able to do the Trump puppet like in his sort of Trump voice, but speaking Russian to people. And it was great. The response we got was 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 phenomenal. I mean, was phenomenal. We uh, people were really drawn to the Trump puppet. We got some great answers from people. We, in fact, encountered one sort of security policey type of guy who accused us of being, uh, you know, propagandists trying to undermine the uh, the glory of Russia. So that was very rewarding. Um, so I, so I don't, I haven't been to Russia in several years, but not because of puppet regime, but you know, my, it's, uh, it, not because of that. The question about, you know, the, the risks, I mean, I think there's a couple risks with doing something like this. One is you don't want to be overtly biased, right? And bias, I think with something like this can come in two ways. One, it can come in the subjects that you pick to satirize, right? If you're only satirizing people on the political right or only satirizing populist nationalists, you know, that's a bias. You're, you know, you're, you're a globalist or whatever, right? So I think when we select who we're satirizing, we try to cast a wide net, right? Like, yes, we satirize uh, Trump and Bolsonaro and, and Putin and, uh, you know, and these guys. But we've um, gone pretty hard at Biden over the past uh, nine months as well for a whole variety of issues, both, you know, his sort of 
less than inspiring leadership, uh, the way that the media has given him a, a kind of big pass on a lot of issues, particularly early in his presidency. So we try to select our subjects in a way that doesn't have a bias in it. And the second way you can run into problem with bias is what is the joke that you're making about any particular character, right? Are you making a joke about, you know, Xi Jinping that derives from ugly stereotypes about Chinese Americans or Chinese people? Or are you making the joke about Xi Jinping about his sort of, you know, crafty lust for power and, you know, will to global domination, right? Are you making the joke about Vladimir Putin that he's just a sort of silly drunk Russian who doesn't respect human life? You know, these sort of dumb stereotypes there are about Russians. Or is it that he is just the irrepressible and irresistible villain of global politics and he just loves to play that role, loves to seize on ways to, you know, to uh, antagonize uh, people and turn their own best instincts against them, right? That's about his political personality. Xi Jinping's, the, the satire with Xi Jinping is about his political personality, not trading in ugly stereotypes about what people from China or what people from Russia are like. So I'm really conscious about writing the scripts and developing the characters and choosing the subjects of the satire in a way that satirizes everybody so that we get angry comments from as wide a, a wider range of, of people on the political spectrum as possible. But the point is not to piss people off, right? The point is to illuminate things about global politics and about these leaders in ways uh, that, you know, provoke, but illuminate and do that fairly across the political spectrum. Okay. So respectful irreverence. Um, I would say, uh, respectful irreverence this is an interesting way of putting it respectful sounds too deferent to me so i think it's irreverent but not vulgar or cheap in a way but yeah maybe respectful irreverence works okay i'll take it i'll take it i mean that being said you i i it seems to me you haven't really shied away from the old biden jokes but i suppose that really ties into his political personality as well yeah, I mean the 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 joke with Biden is it, it's it's um you know there's a whole cottage industry of opinion about how Biden is losing his marbles and he's this you know that which is sort of offensive and silly. Um I do think there is certainly aspects to Joe Biden's rhetorical and political style and always have been where he's like a little all over the place sometimes. And he goes off on these stream of consciousness things. Sometimes he says stuff that, you know, I mean, Joe Biden is one of America's great gaffe machines and always has been, right? So, so, but you're right. I mean, there have been some scripts where I wrote something and I thought, is this trading too much on this kind of like, you know, questioning his sanity or his senility type of thing and drew that back. The other thing that can happen, and I think is... um I try to I try to really be careful about is, you know, obviously doing something with satire involves inflating reality to an absurd extent, right? But when there are specific factual issues that that are in the scripts, I try to be really conscious about making sure that those are right. So, for example, we did a skit maybe two weeks ago in which Joe Biden can't figure out how to get paid parental leave passed. So he calls up a bunch of other world leaders to ask them how they deal with it. And Angela Merkel answers the phone and she's like, yeah, yeah, I'm just uh, about to move out of the, uh, you know, out of Berlin here, but I can talk to you. And, 
Biden says, well, you know, how do you deal with paid parental leave? And she says, yeah, we give, uh, the original script said, yeah, we give three whole years here. And I, as about we were about to go to air, I realized that actually, yes, Germany gives three years of parental leave, but only 14 months of those are paid. So at the last, it was a stop the presses moment, had to go back, retract the audio. You know, most people wouldn't notice that error, but if one person does, it just shatters your credibility because it's like people will give you all kinds of poetic license to do crazy, absurd things with, with puppet satire. But when an actual fact comes up, you have to get that right. Otherwise, it just undercuts everything. So I try to pay a lot of attention um, to that to that kind of stuff. I'll give you another example. A couple of weeks ago, we did a skit where we've like uh, sort of anthropomorphized the coronavirus as like a family, right? So like there's like coronavirus couple and then they get married and then they have kids and the kids are different variants. And we've done this over the past of the course of the past year and a half. And we had one where uh, coronavirus junior Delty was sitting at the dinner table saying how he's having a much harder time in school this year because, you know, people are wearing masks and the social distancing is better and all this. And the parents say, well, you know what? It's time for us to move somewhere where they're going to let you do your, you know, really maximize your potential as a coronavirus. And he said, well, where's that? I said, well, we're moving to Florida. And I wrote this skit right at the time when Florida was having, a, 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 you know, another big wave. But it came out two weeks later. And a uh, prominent Florida politician tweeted back at us and said, hey, you know, this is biased because, look, we have one of the lowest new infection rates in the country in Florida right now. And this, you know, so this looks like a political hit job on Florida just because you're left wing globalist, whatever. And I went to look at the data and it turns out that, in fact, Florida has done one of the worst jobs of protecting kids against covid infections, whatever your views on that are with there, but just as a matter of statistics that that happened to be true but the problem was that it was it the appearance was that we had made a joke that purported to be based on an actual statistic or data but that actually was outdated by the time the skit came out so it looked like a political hit job that made us look biased and that kept me up at night you know and i i I, in retrospect even though the the underlying very specific data was what it was it just looked bad and I regretted that. So that's the type of thing that I try to make sure we get right. Absurdity, be as absurd as you want. But when you use a fact, it's got to be right, particularly these days. All right. So be respectful to some degree mm-hmm. uh, and stick with the facts as much as possible. Or in fact, we'll stick with the facts, period. Yeah. Uh, those are your limitations. Do you have any others that you would uh, that you feel define the show? Um. No, I think I think those are the two things. I think it's um, don't be gratuitously vulgar or crass. Don't trade in personal or kind of group stereotypes uh, when making the joke, you know, creating the jokes for the characters. And it's okay to inflate a stat or a, it's okay to inflate a fact to a hysterically absurd proportion but if you're presenting the fact just as a fact it has to be correct you know it is not factually correct that kim jong-un and donald trump went on a fishing trip together and talked about their dads right so you know i don't hold myself to that level of factual accuracy but if there's a statistic or some specific policy that is mentioned which obviously is from the real world that has to be right well, I likewise imagine that Angela Merkel doesn't have your lovely singing voice and uh, <laughs> Kim Jong-un does not have your your promising rap, rap career. 
Yes, yeah. Well, we don't know about Merkel. She may have a promise. She may have a beautiful singing voice after all. You know, we're we're about to find out what she can do after after these sixteen years in which she's been. Sort of... Oh, it's true. I mean, George W. Bush took a painting. Who's to say she won't you know, head to the opera? Let's let's see. There's a skit right there. Good. You just wrote a puppet regime skit. Okay. So I accept a check and. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah. Oh, okay. Bitcoin. That's very okay. Good. I, I like to keep it modern. What do you think, what role do you think political satire is playing in the, in the current zeitgeist? Well, I mean, I think, um, I think it's harder, I guess, there, well, there's, I guess there's two ways. Political satire is getting easier in some ways and harder in others. It's getting easier in the sense that there's just so much more material. Hmm. Uh, and I don't just mean that in the sense that you know, I mean, look, the presidency of Donald Trump was was a gift to satire. It was almost a poison chalice because he was so mimetic, you know, he so. Yeah. I mean, he he went beyond what you could imagine with satire so much. And actually, there were a couple of times, uh, truth be told, where we wrote some skits thinking that they were beyond the pale of reality. And then they actually happened. I mean, we in January of 2019 or so, I guess it was, we actually wrote a skit in which Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un were comparing the size of their nuclear buttons and threatening to, to nuke each other based on how big their nuclear buttons were. And then not 10 days later, that basically happened in an exchange, you know, between Trump and... Uh, you know, I mentioned this this skit where Trump got locked out of his Twitter and it became a big issue. There was, of course, that happened, right? Some someone at Twitter had locked him out of his account a couple weeks later. So it was it was it was invigorating, but also exhausting to try to keep up with the absurd nature of reality during the during the Trump presidency. That is now now uh, over uh, for the time being, at least. And I think, uh, yeah, satire is there's more material because the day-to-day -day life and actions and hot mic excerpts and, you know, uh, daily foibles of our world leaders are just, there's so much more material of it. You can see it. Everyone has a smartphone. Things are recorded. It's just, there's so much more out there to work with. There's also, of course, a huge industry of, like, meme culture, right, which didn't exist as recently as, 15, you know, 10 years ago, right? The, the, the meme is a relatively new thing in the political and social discourse, at least in the way that it works on, on social media. Um, so there's a lot more material out there uh, to work with. I think the challenge is that we have become so polarized as a, uh, certainly in the United States, but many countries around the world, political polarization has gotten so intense that there's just a less a less willing audience, I think, for material that sends up or lampoons the leaders that people support. Um, politics has acquired this kind of zero sum death match aspect to it, where it's like, boy, if I if I were to if I were to la you know if I'm a supporter of Emmanuel Macron, if I were to you know laugh at a joke made at his expense by someone who doesn't like him, you know th that would be an unaccept I would be unacceptably giving ground. To this, to these people, in this zero-sum death match over the future of, of politics, um, and so I think it's you know you're you're, as people get more polarized, you're kind of losing half the audience for any particular joke. I think also uh, social media has made that worse in some ways. I mean, the obvious ones that social media has contributed to polarization, but I mean, if you think back to like 20 years ago, right? You'd watch The Simpsons. 
and there would be some joke at the expense of Clinton or Bush or whoever. And, you know, you would talk about that joke with your friends, like in school the next day or whatever. It's a relatively small group of people you would talk about it with and you would have friends who thought that, you know, they liked the guy who was being satirized. But it was funny because it was The Simpsons. You could all talk about it and you all knew each other. Now, when someone, when there's a, when there's a bit of political satire, it instantly enters this kind of like super high octane bloodstream of social media where lots of people get super enraged about it and lots of people like, you know, get super angry about it and yell about it with people whom they don't even know. So I think the, there's something about political polarization that is making, I, I suspect, making audiences and the receptiveness to satire much less broad and much more specific and about sort of people's tribal affiliations with, with with politics. And I think that's a problem because I think the point of satire should be that you can, you know, make a joke at Trump's expense and a real die, you know, diehard MAGA person can be like, yeah, you know what? I get it. That's actually kind of that's kind of, that's actually kind of funny and kind of stupid that he does that. Or if you make a joke about Biden, you know, uh, uh, that Biden supporter should be able to say, yeah, I get it. Yeah, maybe Biden hasn't hasn't been doing such a good job on this aspect of his presidency, and and I get it. And then everyone comes out of it sort of smarter and more receptive and thoughtful. But I'm not sure that's what happens in real life these days. I I'm, I'm sure I don't know what you mean. <laughs> right, right. In France, everything is so chill these days. Right. Always, always. <laughs> we need an Eric Zemmour puppet, I think. But... <laughs> oh. Um, it's strange this would be the issue considering how unpopular individual politicians are. I don't think mm. there's ever been a time where we have collectively despised the, the, the political class so thoroughly and yet mm. defended them so vociferously. That's, uh, that's an interesting observation. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, yeah, to the extent that, yeah, to the extent that satire is sending up the political class in general, there is you're absolutely right there is a there is a rich audience for that i just think that um i suspect again i don't have any data on this i'm just sort of um i i'm just a, i'm just a puppeteer what do i know but um but I, I i think that there is definitely a you know a thirst to satirize the political class in general or to beat it up in various ways um at the ballot box and otherwise but again, you run into this problem where how receptive is a diehard, you know, Bolsonaro supporter to satire about Bolsonaro? You know, like we've some of our most successful puppet regime skits have been musical numbers that are about Bolsonaro. And actually, I did one in Portuguese uh, that did quite well in Brazil and some numbers we did on Narendra Modi uh, in India. And. They did hugely, hugely well because these are both Brazil and India are both countries that are super online uh, in the parlance, uh, extremely polarized. But it was like driven. It didn't seem to me that we were getting a huge lot of audience, a huge amount of audience from people who like really were. Well, actually, no. Now that I think about it, we did get attacked by a large number of pro Modi trolls. Huh. Maybe I'm wrong about this. I guess my experience in the U.S. though is that we we tend to get the most engagement and sort of shares and stuff on on satire from the opponents of the people we're satirizing. Um, maybe that's natural. Um, yeah, maybe that's natural. I don't know.
Now I'm not sure I have an answer for the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fine. You, you did a rather thorough exploration of it. So, but that being said, how frequently do you get canceled? I I, I imagine it's it's quite a lot. Has it happened? Uh, canceled? No. I mean, we're still here. Um, but um, no, we we get we get reactions from people who don't like what we're doing. I mean, as I said, like when we did something, we also did. I, I remember another one. We did a skit a couple years ago where uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, did a um, stand-up comedy gig, and the the sub the, the context for the joke was that Louis C.K. had recently returned from his cancellation exile. And that right around the same time, uh, Mohammed bin Salman was sort of being rehabilitated after the uh, murder, which we, you know, uh, now have fairly good idea he was involved in at least instigating of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist. And so the joke was, here's a guy who is so uh, loved by the Western commentariat, uh, the Thomas Friedmans and such that even, you know, despite this heinous crime, he can still get a laugh out of people. And in fact, he actually did. Um, we start that skit. There was a Middle East forum of some kind. Uh, it might have been uh, Davos in the desert or one of the ones that, they, that, that the Saudis put on, where the Lebanese prime minister Hariri was sitting next to MBS. And uh, several months earlier, there had been this bizarre story where it looked like Hariri had been sort of kidnapped or forced or deta forcibly detained in Saudi Arabia uh, in some dispute between, you know, between the Saudis and the Lebanese about about um, about Lebanese politics. Obviously, that's a that's a whole other subject. But MBS had the gall, I remember, to make a joke about that. He said, uh, sitting next to me is uh, the prime minister of, uh, uh, of Lebanon, Mr. Hariri. And by the way, I don't want anyone to say that I'm kidnapping him. <laughs> and the whole audience kind of laughed. And so we took that as the jumping off point for this skit where Mohammed bin Salman gets up and does a whole comedy routine and everyone's laughing. They love it. Like he's, you know, he sees Thomas Friedman in the crowd. He sees a couple other, you know, Western consulting firms that have done business with Saudi Arabia in the crowd. Everyone's laughing. He's killing it, you know. And... Um, we put that skit out and uh, and we got a big backlash from um, from from Saudi trolls uh, on Twitter in particular. We did like six or seven hundred thousand views, um, but then hundreds and hundreds of comments from from Saudi trolls. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't, that's not cancellation. That's getting, you know, uh, getting a rise out of the people that you're satirizing. I guess similarly with, um, with when we did uh, something on Narendra Modi. Um, a lot of the uh, they're called Bakht, the the sort of really committed uh, BJP supporters there. Those troll armies got got pretty worked up. I got tons of like in unreadable. I mean, I don't read, you know, Hindi. I got tons of uh, what were translated for me as abusive uh, DMs uh, in my uh, on Twitter. Um, but that's not we haven't been canceled. I mean, no one has said this is uh, offensive and goes against the prevailing notions of what is, um, you know, what, what is acceptable to say about people or jokes you can make about people and you need to, you need to stop this or be, or, or act, literally be canceled. That has not happened yet. Fingers crossed uh, that it won't. Fingers crossed that it won't. Yeah. Well, it's, t it's tough to judge things these days, but I think, I think we're, I think we're staying on the right side of things. Hmm. Well, either way, it's very admirable. Actually, it's downright ballsy of Eurasia Group 
to 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 put this out there mm -hmm. to to support you in, in creating this project it is look and and as i mean as i mentioned i i have a a, a background as an analyst at eurasia group so i understand um the uh sensitivity uh and you know sometimes we've gotten you know we've gotten questions from uh from some of the analysts like hey you know uh this is uh uh, uh this is this is pretty close, pretty close to the edge and, and how you're satirizing this person. But I think it's a, um, I think it's a credit to Ian that he's stuck with it because he sees the value in reaching this different audience in a different way. And, and I think it's, you know, it does show at a certain level that like we can analyze global politics without being afraid of also satirizing it uh, in obviously in all the kind of intelligent, you know, and sort of illuminating rather than vulgar and, 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 uh, and demeaning ways that we've talked about. But it is, it is, it is, uh, it's not, it's not something that has gone un, unnoticed, right? It's not something, you know, it's an issue that, that's come up from time to time. Right. Um, but every time, as long as the, you know, the criticisms are fair uh, factual to the extent that they uh, need to be and um, not sort of punching down, we've stuck with them. And, and I think it's, uh, it's a testament to, you know, Ian's willingness to, to kind of brave that, which is great. A and also to the way we do what we do, which is that, again, you know, you can't criticize what we're doing by saying this is stereotypical or this is offensive or this is racist or this is, you know, it's it's not that. You can be pissed off about the politics that we're satirizing, but that's the point, right? That's what we're after is to send up the politics. All right. <clears throat> well, that, that brings me to another question that I wanted to ask earlier. You, you, you were talking about the way that political satire uh, or that your political satire is informed by marriage disputes and the, the sort of incestuous uh, soap operatic uh, elements of global politics. Do you ever feel that the desire to conform to a model that, that very heavily features, well, great men, basically, mm -hmm. or great people, rather, do you ever feel that conforming to that particular uh, mold of satire inhibits your ability to approach certain other topics? Uh, what what do you have in mind? Well, I don't know. For example, I know, let's take the example of the Gilets Jaunes movement. Okay. Ultimately, it could be approached, you know, from the perspective of Macron is upset with people on his lawn or something like that, or you know, he's being mm -hmm. held to account by you know by any number of um, outside factors. But ultimately, perhaps it has to boil down to rather it, bo it boils down to more than interpersonal drama. Uh, do you ever feel there's any difficulty in approaching that uh, with puppets? Um. That's a good question. I mean, I guess your question is sort of about the focus is always on the the political top rather than the kind of grassroots from whence a lot of these political issues and concerns actually originate. Is exactly. That right. Like exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, I think there have been a couple of times when we have done skits that are just like ordinary people. Right. Like they're not it's just like man on the street, uh, you know, who's yelling about socialism in the U.S. Like that was like a character or like, 
you know, some other character we had who was just like millennial concerned about X. And um, those are those are fun. And uh, to your question, I, I certainly would like to do more stuff like that. Um, the challenge there is that um, the viewer doesn't come to that with as intuitive an understanding of what the world is or who the character is as when, for example, it's Macron or Merkel or Putin, right? Like you already know you have a there's already a familiarity that provides you a way in when you are using characters that represent more kind of day to day non-political figures. It just requires more of a setup so that people understand who this character is and why this character is speaking to them uh, about such and such issue. So um, I would like to explore doing more of that uh, for the reason that you say, which is that there is a certain limitation to the illuminating aspect of what we do if all we're illuminating is the largest actors on the stage. Of course, they're the most powerful ones and it's, you know, but uh, but you are right that there is a daily experience and perspective on this that could be uh, could and should be incorporated more. One way that we've tried to do that also is to use the political characters and take them out on the street to do man on the street type of stuff. Right. So I mentioned we did that in Russia with the Trump puppet. Right. We also took Vladimir Putin onto the streets of New York in the run up to the 2018 midterm elections and had him talk to people on the street about why it's so hard to vote in the United States, right? Like, he was, of course, you know, the jokes were, hey, I will pay such and such to vote for such and such candidate. Like, you know, please support my guy. I will give you 500 rubles. You know, making jokes about, like, corruption. and But also then it got down to this stuff where we were talking to people and Putin was pointing out, look, in Russia, you can vote on a Sunday, so you don't have to ask your jerk boss for a day off just to go vote. Why don't you guys do that in the U.S.? You know, you guys are always criticizing me about my elections, but uh, why is it so hard to vote, right? What are with all these new voter ID laws? Why is it, you know, why are you making it so hard? And obviously no one is going to claim or understand Vladimir Putin as, you know, a paragon of, you know, competitive democracy. But when you turn things around on people, a lot of people that we talked to on the street kind of were like, huh, yeah, like, wow, like why, you know, why, why, is, why is it so hard to vote in, in the U.S.? And so that was a way using the kind of great power character getting down onto the street level and talking to actual human beings, not puppet human beings, actual human beings about what they think. I actually have an idea. I want to take... Um, uh, I'm going to be uh, in, in Colombia for, for, for some time over the winter for various family reasons. And I want to take a Xi Jinping puppet with me. And I want to take Xi Jinping on the streets of Colombia to actually speak to, you know, we hear so much about U.S.-China rivalry for Latin America and influence in Africa and trying, you know, I want to understand and use the Xi Jinping puppet as a way into understanding what people actually think about that in Latin America. Think, actually think about that on the streets of Colombia. Is this an issue? What, what, what are the aspects of China, China's rise that we're all writing and talking about so furiously in the think tank industry? What are the aspects of that that filter through to an ordinary person's daily experience? So stuff like that, I think, is a fun way to get into those more kind of grassroots day to day experiences of global politics in a way that can shed light on what people actually 
think because also there's a certain delight that people have in like talking to Xi Jinping in you know in quotations or talking to Vladimir Putin right that's fun and it disarms people and you get some interesting stuff out of them uh, that that does bring me to another question though um what proportion of people just just walk away from you very fast when you're when you're doing this sort of thing well there, in general uh, a puppet attracts a crowd hmm. i mean you know, when I was cruising around central Moscow with the Trump puppet, I mean, it was, you know, it was we, we got a lot of attention. I mean, you know, there was like a couple getting married in the in, in the park and they said, hey, come over and take a, we want a picture with the president. You know, there was like a tourist group from China that was very amused by it and came over to talk to us. People stroll. It, 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 a puppet attracts a, a crowd. When we took uh, Vladimir Putin to uh, to Times Square a couple of years ago, it's you know, there's people are. There's something inherently disarming and engaging and curious about a, about a puppet that makes that people may not necessarily want to talk to you, but you at least have a chance to hook them when mm. they first see a puppet. Right. So I would say our success rate for, hey, can we actually talk to you with this puppet? I don't know. Forty percent. That's pretty good. You that know? Is pretty good. <laughs> so and then there's a lot of editing to weed out the good stuff. But people were very receptive in general. We'll see how Xi Jinping does in Colombia, but I think he'll I think he'll be a hit. I think one of the advantages of using these these huge names is that they, they do tend to attract more of a crowd than just a nameless, faceless puppet. Yeah, exactly. If it's a nameless, faceless puppet, again, yeah, people are like, what is who is that? You know, who is that? What is this? What is the backstory? Like, mm. but if you've got Trump, I mean, mm. you know, <laughs> everybody knows who that is. And regardless of their feelings about him, they are engaged. That's another thing I'll say, actually. The Trump puppet actually did. I, I now realize that this is like running counter to my my grand theory about how polarization has made satire less accessible. But but because now when I think about it, the Trump puppet did have this disarming effect even on like you know, all but the most absolutely committed resistance, not my president types. I mean, there's a certain, um, you know, it's a, it's a Muppet style puppet. It's like this sort of fuzzy, endearing thing in a way. And the physical comedy of the Trump puppet, I think, I think was uh, kind of endearing in a way that even some of the most implacably opposed, you know, anti-Trump people w would tell me sometimes they felt guilty that they thought the puppet was sort of cute in a way. Right? <laughs> so I think there's uh, maybe um, to unify my two disparate theories now, maybe there's something about puppets in particular that gets past or can circumvent some of the problems with political polarization that are making satire in general less accessible for uh, for people who see their leaders being satirized. But when it comes to a puppet, maybe there's an opening and maybe that's why puppet regime works. So the secret to, de to political de-radicalization is puppets. If that's what it takes, man, you know, we're doing we're doing God's work here. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um. All right. Well, that that leaves me just with one final, um, very important question. Yeah. yeah. Who's your favorite? Oh, um, who's my favorite? I can guarantee I, uh, they will never know. I, <laughs> I uh, really enjoy the various facets of Vladimir Putin's villainy as a puppet. I mean, I, um, he's just such a, he's such an anti-hero, uh, always. 
I really enjoy writing skits a- a- around him in all different registers. I mean, there's one that is an ongoing series called Putin It Out There. I don't know if you've seen this one, but it's like basically it's like an ask me anything. It's a call in advice show. Right. And it's modeled on sort of mid 1990s public access, New York City, late night call in shows, which I grew up watching. Right. And I just enjoy so much putting Putin's sort of vicious and sort of conniving persona into answering questions about daily life. Right. (laughs) Like there's one where a woman, you know, woman Peggy from Staten Island writes in and says uh, or calls in and says, the sewage backup in my street has been just horrible and the local authorities won't do anything about it. And Putin says, says, well, Peggy, uh, look, first of all, uh, in this situation, if it were me, the first thing I would do is call up the mayor and poison him to death. If it were me, <laughs> only if it were me. You do what you need to, but only if, you know, or, you know, so it's just like there's something so um, uh, fun and applicable about the way that Putin, um, I don't know. I I really enjoy the Putin puppet, I have to say. But I think they're all, uh, they're all, they're all great and great fun. And, um, you know, I hope people enjoy them. Hmm. Well, I got to admit, after you said Putin it out there, I I realized that, of course, of course, he would be your favorite. Because only Who's someone. Your favorite? Let me ask you. Let me turn this around. Who's your favorite? Oh, it's 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 Merkel. Very obviously Merkel. Merkel. Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> okay. I just the, there was one skit actually featuring Putin uh, recently about the um, uh, actually no it must have been about a year ago the lack of the vaccine doses. Yes, exactly the drug deal. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah. And what what was the line? The Putin line was fantastic. It was something something along the lines of Ah yes no, uh, Russian gas truly is a gateway drug. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That one was tremendous fun. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I basically, you know, ima- reimagined all the like sort of seedy drug dealers who would cruise around Washington Square Park in my childhood and early adolescence and just put those guys into Putin's character as this guy who shows up with a little fanny pack full of vaccines to sell them to Angela Merkel in a dark alley because this was early in, you know, early in the vaccine. As you remember, this is when Europe didn't have enough vaccines. Um, yeah. The, the, the Putin Merkel uh, repartee is always really funny too. I, I I really enjoy that. We did one a couple years ago, where it was uh, for for Valentine's Day, and it's Angela Merkel writing a um uh, like a Craigslist missed connection uh thing to Vladimir Putin. You don't know it's Putin at first, but she's writing, you know, back in the hot summer of 1985, you know, we were both in East Germany. You were a strapping young agent. I was just a, you know, curious young physical chemist studying surface hydroxyls. And, you know, what what could have been between us, Vladimir, you know, this sort of thing. Um, I, I really enjoy I'm going to miss Merkel, I have to say, um, you know, not just um, po- uh, politically, but as a puppet character. I mean, gosh, she's, she really has been a lot of fun so i'm glad to hear that you that you like her what's a puppet you'd like to see what's the next what's a puppet that doesn't exist that you would like to see uh well well for one i'm not sure who exists because i haven't gone through the entire backlog okay um who would i like to see you know what i can't think of anyone right now but i will get back to you by email (laughs) yeah please do no i'm curious to know another fun one has been boris johnson just because he's so um eminently puppety in, in real life. I mean, he's just a sort of this chaotic 
constantly, you know, (laughs) sort of frazzled, rumpled. I mean, that's part of his, uh, you know, uh, charm or, uh, or, or otherwise, depending on what, what you think of, of Boris Johnson, but that he's such a puppety character in real life that doing the puppet for him is always a lot of fun as well. You're the one doing the voice of Boris Johnson. Um, yes, yes, I do all of them, um, <clears throat> except for um, Kim Jong Un and uh, M- and MBS. Right. Yeah. Okay, because no, the the Boris Johnson one is just it's just spot on. It's delightful. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, I spent a lot of time sort of like listening to these guy go- these uh, these characters to try and get the accents as close as I can. So I appreciate that it it seems to be working. <clears throat> That's delightful. I think we're more or less out of time for this episode. In that case, Alex, let me thank you for uh, for appearing on the show. And let me thank you for doing the Vladimir Putin voice. (laughs) Always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure, Shane. I will look forward to the next opportunity. I look forward to it greatly as well. All right, this is Talkville 21 signing out. Thank you for listening to the Talkville 21 podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information, please visit our website, talkville21.com. That's T-O-C-Q-U-E-V-I-L-L-E-2-1.com. And stay tuned for the next episode. We would like to credit Kevin McLeod for his rendition of Tchaikovsky's Waltz No. 9, Opus 40, for our intro and outro music. This piece is licensed under Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com.